Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The culture within the state of Kentucky is a huge part of my identity. I want to be able to celebrate that and also celebrate my ancestries, all the traditions that have made me. It's definitely been a very, very big journey that has felt very lonesome because there's so few of us here in Kentucky. The thesis of our show is that one single word, it's the word really, because Mm -hmm. that's the interrogation to perpetually other us. And for us, the flip side of that is using that word as self-reflection to be able to claim the identity for ourselves and be able to say, no, I identify as an American or as a Southerner or as a Kentuckian. My name is Dan Wu. My name is Charlene Buckles, and And I am am a modern modern minority. minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Dan Wu and Charlene Buckles, who co-host a podcast on Louisville Public Radio called Where Y'all Really From? And stick around, because later in the episode, we've got a very special message about COVID prevention from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. But let's talk about today's guests, Dan and Charlene. They're not podcast and radio hosts. They're professionals, restaurateurs, social activists who decided to create a show about a year ago that tells a really interesting version of the Asian Kentucky experience. Sharon, what'd you think of Dan and Charlene? I thought that they were a, a different version of me and you. So I yeah, immediately- like Bizarro Universe. Yeah. It was like immediately just thought, wow, this they're a mirror image of who you and I are. But I loved hearing their experiences from the the Southern, you know, American being Asian in a place where they truly are- a minority, the same way that when I hear your stories of growing up in Alabama, half the time, like my mind just gets completely blown because it's so different and so unique from anything that I grew up with. So having their perspective was amazing to hear. Well, something that really took me by surprise, you know, the thesis of our show is minority voices for kind of all of our majority ears, right? So if you are male, white, straight, non-Muslim, non-Asian, et cetera, but Something Charlene said later on is she's unapologetically designing their show for Asian ears in the area. And if other people want to come along and hear it, that's great because we're speaking to kind of a circle of people, I hate to say that think like us, but that are open to hearing different stories. They might Mm -hmm. not look like us or have our ethnic background, but she's speaking to the Asian Americans who are in a minority population of Asian Americans in Kentucky with their show. And they're highlighting those voices from a representation standpoint. And it's 
the premise is the same, but like the thesis is so different. And I find that really fascinating. And that the fact that they're distributing on Louisville Public Radio. So if you know the demographics of Kentucky, or you can guess it, the types of people who are inevitably still going to get to hear and be exposed to it, it's, it's just really amazing. Yeah, it's almost like a dream. Like I almost feel like I would love to plug our conversations into that demographic and and get that live feedback as well because that's, I don't know if I could handle it honestly. I mean, I think that's why you know, and and they talk. Dan and Charlene went into this too of the reactions that they've gotten, but I think that's what makes this work for me so interesting because we know our own realities. We we hear our guests' experiences, and it's almost like to me that's like the litmus test, right? Like. We're just speaking our truth. This is who we are. We, you know, in my family, we take our shoes off before, like as soon as we enter the door, we've talked about all the weird foods that we have at home and that's just normal. And then you get a different perspective or somebody who literally has never had that same lived experience and you hear their reaction to that, whether that's a positive or a negative thing sometimes. And that to me is where the the true dialogue and I think the true learning happens. It's It's not always comfortable. But I think that's what makes this all so magical to me, the fact that we all have the same purpose and the same mission at the end of the day. Well, it's clear you and Charlene have a mission for another <laughs> reality TV podcast. Yes, at the we end have of a lot this, of so. shared interests. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope you guys are really going to enjoy our conversation with Dan and Charlene. But also, please be sure to go check out Where Y'all Really From by Louisville Public Media, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And Charlene, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You guys are pros, so I, I have to put. <laughs> I don't <you're> know. Pros. <laughs> <laughs> Getting there? Maybe well, like pro a, amateur? A of, <laughs> well, a lot of folks in the great state of Kentucky have heard your voice. Maybe, and we want more people to hear it. So I, I got to turn your own question on you. Where are y'all really from, Dan? <laughs> uh <laughs> See, it depends on where in the grocery line I am. We'll, 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 depend, we'll determine that answer. The, the grocery store, because if you're at H Mart, you probably don't get that question. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I wish we had an H Mart here. Had an H Mart here. <laughs> exactly. I've lived the majority of my life in Lexington, but I was born in China, moved to the States when I was eight. First to Fargo, North Dakota, then came to Lexington, Kentucky, went to UK, then moved to San Francisco, moved to Brooklyn, and then moved back. So boom, there it is. Wow. <laughs> how about you, Charlene? Where are y'all really from? Where are you really from, Charlene? <laughs> I was born in Marikina, Philippines, which is a metro, metro Manila, Philippines, it's where my mom grew up. My dad is from Gabonaduan, which is in northern Philippines. We moved to Southern California when I was about five, moved to Northern Kentucky when I was about seven or so. And I've lived in Kentucky most of my life, had a little blip in Atlanta for about seven years and then came back because this is where I wanted to raise my family. Well, it's like, I, I get this question a lot because my fun fact is always, hey, I'm from Alabama and no one ever expects that. <laughs> and the, the question I get a lot, the follow-up question, right, is like, why? How? And I have to explain my parents' journey, but, but then they're like, what was that like? And so I guess those younger experiences of your home country and finding your way here, what, what are some of those stories for how you interpreted here <laughs> being different from there? Well, it's really funny because like a lot of my cousins still live in Southern California where there's a huge Asian 
population. They have all of their friends that they went to college with and were in their weddings and our uh, ninongs and ninongs or godparents are all Mm -hmm. Filipino. And so they have a very strong community over there in Southern California. Here in Kentucky, it's just a totally different experience. I think like you hear so many stories about like what I call coastal Asians that live in like the big cities or like in the coastal areas. But being from Kentucky, people are like, but really like, that's like the 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 title of our podcast where y'all really from that's usually the second question no really like where are you really really from Um, yeah they never accept the first answer they never accept the first answer so it's been a big journey for me that i'm still like continuing like what how do i define myself and i always say like when anyone asks me like what how do you identify i usually say i'm Filipina Kentuckian, because being in Kentucky, the culture that's within the state of Kentucky is a huge part of my identity. And I want to be able to celebrate that as well. And also celebrate my ancestry, celebrate all the traditions that have made me and, and the ancestors that I have. And, and so it, it's definitely been a, a very, very big journey that has felt very lonesome because there's so few of us here in Kentucky. Yeah, I definitely feel uh, a lot of what Charlene said. For us, like my dad, we go all the way back to the Cultural Revolution in China, and my parents were both sort of exiled to Inner Mongolia because of quote-unquote bad family histories. They met there, and then finally when in the 80s they opened it up to travel to the West, my dad applied for um, a PhD program and basically applied everywhere in America he could and took the first place that gave him money which was North Dakota State University in Fargo. So that answers the question of why the heck Fargo? <laughs> and to me, it's it's such the immigrant story because it's not like we did a whole bunch of research and said, oh, Fargo, North Dakota sounds like the place for me. Mm-hmm. It was literally like, where can I go? Uh, where will mm-hmm. they take me? Okay, here I come. And that's all there is to it. And then when you mm-hmm. talk about refugees, you don't even have that amount of agency. Yeah. You, you yeah. literally are just dropped wherever and sometimes they tell you you're going to Arizona and you land in Kentucky. And so, so, so much of immigration, again, doesn't have to be Asian, is political. And the one thing I was reflecting on is like, if it wasn't for MLK, none of us would be here. Mm. Like it was mm. Lyndon Johnson's work and pressure from, <laughs> from MLK to pass voting rights, et cetera, led to the uh, removal of the Asian Exclusion Act, right? Mm. In the 60s mm-hmm. and 70s. And mm-hmm. had that not happened, None of us would be here. But then on the flip side, to your point, in China, they didn't even open up people leaving. Right. And it, it's immigration. And you can pass that back to Irish and Russian waves of immigration in this country, too. But like immigration is such a political thing. And it's it's out of our hands. I asked my dad once, like, why did he why did you pick Canada? He came to Canada first in the 60s. And he was like, because I didn't get into the other places. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like you go over, and then why'd you go to Alabama? Well, I got tenure track to be a professor at this university. That's why. Yeah, Canada was my safety country. So <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally, literally and figuratively. But I mean, that's why it was created, right? The immigration system was created to keep people out. It's not the system is doing what it was designed to do, which was to put barriers in place so that people would be kept out. And 
there's a very different vibe, if you will. There's definitely a different layer when it comes to the Irish immigration and Italian immigration. And then you have the Asian immigration that's coming. And then now, of course, the Latinx immigration. There's there's definitely a different feel to that, a different experience because we're not white. Let's just call it as it is. You know what I mean? I mean, there's, it's definitely been a very interesting experience, especially when you're put in a very predominantly white setting like the South. Yeah, no, 1000%. Some of your guests have even talked about this. It's if you're in Atlanta or LA, it's a very different experience versus if you're in Lexington or Hebron or Montgomery or Auburn, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I guess, and and that's kind of something that you try to tackle with your show indirectly. And that's what we do too, is greater empathy and understanding. So you guys created the show not too far after we created ours in the midst of how do you, what do you say? Everything? Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. right. I, I guess prior to that moment, like what were some of your experiences or stories that informed the thesis that you bring to the conversations with folks? I think for us, like we, the thesis of our show is that one single word and it's actually, it's the word really, because mm-hmm. that's the interrogation. That's the thing that people use that word to perpetually other, other us. And for us, the flip side of that is using that word to as self-reflection, as Charlene said, talking about a Filipina Kentuckian, to be able to claim the identity for ourselves and be able to say, like, no, I identify as an American or as a Southerner or as a Kentuckian. So I think the thesis has been simmering in all of our heads, I think, for a long time. For us, the, the catalytic event, and I think for a lot of folks in the AAPI community were the Atlanta spa killings. The origin story, and you'll hear this in the first episode of our show, is that our friends May Suramek, who is a entrepreneur and social justice badass in Berea, Kentucky, and Nima Kalkarni, who is the only Asian American state rep in Frankfurt, they got together, and they had actually just recently met, they got together and like a lot of us, they were like, we need to do something, what is that something? They bat around ideas. Somebody said the word podcast, and May literally said, hold on, I'm going to bring Dan Wu in because I've done a whole bunch of different podcasts over the years. Yeah, I heard it was literally, you got conference called in immediately. Yeah, Yeah, literally, I got cold called in. I was like, wait, what's happening here? And then it just happened. And then literally, I think the same day or the next day, or even during that conversation, probably, I said, what, I've got stuff going on, and I'd also love to have other voices on the show and not just be me interviewing folks and talking to people. And how I came to know Charlene was she, and and, and she'll tell you the exact thing, I had seen her in a panel that was also post-spa shooting about anti-Asian hate. I had heard her speak. I loved what she had to say. I loved her general demeanor. So I just sent her a message and I was like, Charlene, you want to co-host a podcast? And she was like, what, what? (laughs) (laughs) No, I never thought about uh, doing a podcast, quite honestly. But I think that at that point, of course, a lot of us were just trying to figure out what the hell was going on after Atlanta Massacre. Of course, all of those things were happening in the beginning of COVID and we had and it, it wasn't ever really covered. And then around January 20. 21 is when you start hearing more about these instances and then it all like came into a very tragic event that was Atlanta massacres. So I feel like the the podcast became for me at least a very therapeutic outlet. I think many of us use this platform to to have that sense of community. But 
also it was really really interesting to see and to hear what other um, API Kentuckians were saying too about how this show was really therapeutic for them to mm-hmm. understand their identity, to understand these like several layers and multitudes that we hold. And I do think as Dan was saying, like at the end of it, we all come to the understanding, I think the biggest like overarching theme or the thesis of it is that we come to the understanding that we are both API and Kentuckians, that this is our Kentucky too, and we deserve- It's an and, right. Yeah. It's an and, and we deserve to be here and to be seen and to have our stories told, which are never usually covered in mainstream media. What I find interesting about all three of you is that your experiences are so different from mine growing up. Like- My family came from China and they entered the United States through New York City. And for my grandfather's entire life, he lived in Chinatown. And so I grew up in a community where I was part of the majority. And Remen and I have talked about this a lot when we go into our own orange stories, but like, I didn't even know I was different than mainstream, or I didn't even understand what mainstream American really was until I got to junior high, high school, and really even college Mm. when there was a lot more diversity around me. And when I hear, definitely when I hear Raman's story of like being one of the only Indian American families in his area or how like people would hear about a cousin of a family member coming and even if it was like distant, distant friends, that person would automatically be invited for dinner. Like those types of relationships are so interesting to me. And I'm just wondering, especially for both of you, Dan and Charlene, like what was that like where you were one of a smaller population, but also what did you have to do to fit in? Like what are some moments that you can remember of of feeling as if you had to to be someone else or represent yourself in a different way? I mean, we got really good at code switching is what we did. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, like I always felt like they were two completely different worlds. The world that I step into in my house where you take off your shoes and the house smells like Chinese food and the rest of the world when I walked out the door, I rarely had friends over. There was It's like that. a secret identity, right? It really is, but it's one that you're embarrassed about to yeah. some degree because Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, smells and sounds. Yeah, smells and sounds and the food is weird, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. I was joking with some friends recently that the three most recent Spider-Man movies, the fact that Peter Parker's best friend Ned is uh, Filipino mm-hmm. and that he had never gone over to Ned's house for dinner. I was like, that's the most unrealistic part of this whole thing. Like, how did you miss out? <laughs> how did, at least, at least we, we got to meet Ned's grandmother, at least in the most recent movie. But like for me, that experience in the 80s was, was not that way at all. It was more, I didn't want to bring weird food, quote unquote, to lunch. I just did the thing to fit in. And into high school, I was into heavy metal and I had mm. ripped jeans and denim and I was, drawing pictures of the Punisher, like very classic, like classic, I wouldn't say toxic, but maybe on my way to like toxic white boy vibes. Uh, You're thankfully. describing my youth. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, but you think about it this way, like those were the lanes available, right? Yeah. Like right. those were the lanes available to like hetero, straight guys. And, and I want to say white because to some degree, like I didn't have any model of what it was like to be a young Asian American. I was a Chinese kid when I went back to my house or I was a Chinese kid when I was around my parents' friends who were Chinese, but I didn't have any models. I literally had like two or three friends in high school that were Asian American, 
but we were all like our own little islands. So when well, if me, anything, you wanted to disassociate from them because yeah. you're trying to fit in. Yeah. And like I had two Indian friends growing up and still close with them for the most part. But back then we would only talk to each other on the bus because God forbid mm, that the mm -hmm. jokes would pile on if we were mm -hmm. hanging out together. Yeah. I mean, I got to ask you both this question. Did you ever just pretty much think of yourself as white, like default to that state? I know to be to, to, to make you less uncomfortable. I did. Like there were moments <laughs> where. Well, no, I, I'm trying to think because it's it was weird because a lot of all of my cousins still lived in California. I would go visit them. Mm -hmm. I would stay with them in the summer often, or like in the holidays when my mom was still, you know, was working and she was a single parent, and so I had to go with them for a while. So I was always balancing in between those two worlds, and I think, I think Dan said it really well. Like I got really really great at code switching so great that like i didn't even realize i was using a different accent when i was in california wow. and then wow. when i was here because there are very like subtle like tones that you would use in california and my cousins would say you have such a country accent and i would be talking like just like this and i'm like i don't even what are you talking about and then when i would come back from california like my friends here would say that uh -huh. you have gotten super like west coast and so <laughs> Like there, it was like really subtle code switching that you never recognize or realize. And so growing up, there was definitely moments that were like very <laughs> traumatic, like the things that people would say to you. Like I, I remember in seventh grade, particularly this one boy said, you remind me of Mulan and that would be your Disney princess. And I was so upset about that. I remember being so, so upset because I was like, I don't want to be Mulan. I want to be Cinderella or whatever. Like I had such a reaction to that. And it was like the first time that like, I was like, oh wait, I can't, can I be Cinderella? I guess I have to be Mulan. All of these mm. different like things that we, that like went through my head at the time. Of course there were a lot more, um, very hateful speech that happened throughout my middle school and and high school but but I always knew that I was different I think my cousins in California would say that I was like white on the inside but I'd never really felt mm. that <laughs> and I never really like felt fully Filipino because I wasn't like my cousins in the Philippines or cousins in California so it was it was always like a balancing act but I'm currently reading actually Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva. I'm a, I'm a development professional. I do, I fundraise for the revolution. I fund the revolution for my day <laughs> job. So I, we're, I'm reading this book and in there he says, we have to balance both worlds and we can do that as BIPOC folk because we have been code switching our whole lives. I'm paraphrasing. Mm. Edgar, if you're listening to this, I'm so sorry. I probably butchered it. But, <laughs> but I do think that especially where we are in the South, especially in, in a place that is predominantly white, we had to learn how the very, very small nuances of code switching for survival. Like it wasn't because this would be fun or cool, but it was like in our genes, in our instincts to be like, you have to do this or else you're going to experience more trauma and harm. Hmm. I, I would say to answer your question, did I ever feel white? I don't think I ever did, but looking back, culturally, once I step out of my parents' house, I was in the white world. I ate mm -hmm. white food. I listened to white music. Most of my relationships have been with white women. It's hard to, 
I don't know. Like, I don't know what it means. And I, st I didn't until literally I moved to San Francisco after college. I did not have a conception of what being an Asian American was. Mm -hmm. I was an American out in the world that did not really utilize any of my Asian or Chinese-ness until I went home and talked to my parents. And it wasn't until San Francisco where not only did so many people look like me, but so many people had common experiences to me, mm -hmm. were mm -hmm. these, I think like we all are, third culture kids, where we not only straddle the two worlds, but then we start creating this third world that melds all those things into a unique identity that to some degree our parents can't relate to and to some degree the rest of the world can't relate to. But the four of us in this room, no matter where we grew up and what our experiences were, we know exactly what that third culture is. Yeah, that third space. I love that, Dan. The third space. Mm -hmm. That that mm -hmm. I, I think that that captures it so well because I'm sure as you all have experienced, I mean, were you the one where like people told me that I was acting white, but I never mm -hmm. felt that because in my mm -hmm. head, I'm like, I still have to take off my shoes when I go inside the house. I still <laughs> yeah, eat rice. Yeah. <laughs> I still eat with my hands. Y'all don't mm -hmm. do yeah. that. And like, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's so it's like I was always told that. But I never, ever felt it. And I think that what Dan was saying, that third space is that's I've always lived in that. So I never really knew if I felt white. Well, and, and that third space is formed in like your teens and your 20s because it's a suppression of one culture and acceptance of the other when you're in that mode of, of code switching. And I think that's what it was. It was pushing down the brownness, right? When I was at school, going on a date hanging out at a party. But, and the thing that really blows my mind, and I'm not sure if you guys have kids, I know Sharon does like me, our kids are inhabiting this fourth space of just complete acceptance. It's like, yeah, I've oh, got yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh -huh. yes, yes, we eat weird food at home, but my daughter doesn't know it's weird that she eats Chinese and Indian food at home. I did. Right. Does that make right. sense? Right, mm -hmm. yeah. My daughter's yeah. like, yeah, I had eel for dinner. Get over it. <laughs> like, that's yeah. just what I do. Yeah. In the same way that we stand on our parents' shoulders, they stand even taller on our shoulders to where that thing that makes them different, and it sounds like all of us have mixed identity kids. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and they're living in a space now. Now, this is not obviously like we're not living in some sort of utopia where everything is hunky-dory and it's a post-racial society. But we would we wouldn't have a podcast, right? That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. We would we wouldn't need to talk about this so much. But but the fact that a lot of what makes her different is what makes her interesting to her friends, or it's not even like her friends are her friends, not in spite of and not because of. It's just not even that much of a factor. They're more concerned with exploring their sexuality and their sexual identity and talking about the climate crisis and all this other stuff. I will say, though, as a teenager last year, after Atlanta happened, my kid is pretty precocious, pretty headstrong, does her own thing, is, is very independent, and I'd never seen her so shaken up and also alone because she's a very social kid. She's got a really strong friend group. But when that happened, she realized how few Asian American friends she had in her circle. She had one friend who's Indian and her friend, her Indian friend, didn't feel like the Atlanta shootings were about her. Mm -hmm. 
which is uh, we can dissect that. That's a whole interesting thing. No, it's but, something I've yeah, thought of yeah. as the brown guy. Yeah, yeah. something I yeah. thought about. It's like we're Asian. Yeah. This comes up in a lot of Asian spaces that I have conversations in, including this podcast, but then other podcast collaborators. Like, I don't. I'm not sure how the term Asian gets interpreted, but like sometimes it's this is weird, but it's almost exclusionary to East Asian versus South Asian and right. South Asians are Indians, but God, don't tell that to my Bengali and my Pakistani friends right? or my Sri Lankan friends. Mm-hmm. They are South Asian, but right. they're not Indian, but it's, it's, but it's a very different subcontinent. And I think yeah. about that when you think about Latinx or Africa, like Ghana, Kenya, et cetera, it's like, it's a rude thing to catch us all into one thing. Yeah. Sort you don't of, do that to but, people from, from Europe. Well, sort of, but I think in the context of like rural America, when there's like so few of us, we talked about this in another podcast where I had to expand my identity so that I could find some sort of community. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, I, there were so few Filipinos in Northern Kentucky, yeah. Hebron area, or even, it, it, and quite honestly, even in Atlanta. So I did, I had to expand to being Asian and then expand that to mm-hmm. AAPI to expand that mm-hmm. to immigrant and so, like, I had to hold all of these multitudes, one, to relate to others, but then also so that I could find commonality in people who are experiencing very similar experiences that I am. Again, let's be honest, like, the, the white stream of air or, or white America sees immigrants all the same. And so it's like we, we experience yeah. all those harms and all that trauma and all that targeting and tokenizing exactly the same. Those feelings are exactly the same. And so I had to expand my identity in that way. And I think that compassion and that trying to hold each other up is very revolutionary. So I, I do think that that is, I think that, that we're all learning, or at least like, at least in this space in rural America is what I'm learning very, very clearly. What I would love to see, honestly, the more I learned about the, the roots of the term Asian American is the fact that it originated alongside the black power movement in the Asian American sort of civil rights movement of the 60s. So that term came along as a political term to self-identify and to create solidarity between what otherwise would be really, really disparate groups with so many different cultures and let's be honest, at war with each other for the last mm-hmm. how many hundred years. Mm-hmm. Like, no, dude, Asians uh, are way yeah. more racist. Than- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, mm-hmm. it, Asians towards other Asians, yeah. Asians towards the same Asians, but darker yeah. skinned or from yeah. the different South. Different cast or, or yeah. Yes, yeah, I mean, all of that stuff. That's so, all colonization. I, yeah. <laughs> I blame well, I mean, that on all that. No, no, to, to me, actually, yeah. yes and no. Like, pre in India, pre-British, like, you, you had the caste system. You had mm-hmm. warring kingdoms. There wasn't one India, if anything. And so I can only speak for, like, South Asia. But I do think wedges were put in place mm-hmm. to keep colonies down. But I, the origins of human nature, this is yeah. what I, like, I would argue... Asians are just as human as Africans, Europeans, Native Americans, blah, 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 in the sense that we have this like very human flaw of tribalism. Yeah. Oh, like, yes. That's yeah. our base animal yeah. instinct is to be tribal. To be civilized is to be like, oh, I totally want to try your food and hang out with you. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, for me, being Asian American is like, it's reactive to how mm-hmm. I'm treated in the world, how non-Asian folks and Asian mm-hmm. folks see me and it's also proactive from the inside of me making the determination what does Asian American mean to me and I would love to see more Asian Americans go back to 
reclaiming those sort of revolutionary, maybe even militant, strident, strong roots of the term Asian American and not get too caught up in the idea of like, well, we all have different cultures and you get sure. lumped together yeah. and we don't always belong together. It's like, well, okay, maybe we don't, but let's belong together anyway. Let's make a decision to do it for a purpose, for the purpose of advancing not just our civil rights, but the civil rights of black folks and queer folks and everybody else. And I will say too, like with the tribal mentality is that people, when you think of tribal mentality, the reason that they were like fighting for land and resources because there was some sort of understanding that it's limited or that there's like scarcity in that. And so I do think that if you look at that and apply that to what's happening now, people I have been told many times, or at least Im implicitly, that there is only room for one minority at the table, right? Like mm. there's a, that scarcity mm. there that you can't, only one of you can- Zero sum, zero sum. The zero mm -hmm. sum game, right? And there's only room for one. And whoever is the most, I don't know, the, 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 the most compliant, the least annoying, if you will, or the, the one that's not going to mm -hmm. rock the boat is the one that's going to be at the table. And that is such a total lie. Like that scarcity mentality is a lie. And I think that when we're able to expand our thinking and know that we're all in this together, that there's room for all of us, that's when we break away from that tribal mentality. That's when we break away from being a, like that. That's when we are able to form community. And I do think that's like the next step, the next chapter of what it is to be an Asian American in, in America and, and in Kentucky. And now a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. What? We've made it, dude. I mean, I love all of our sponsors equally, but I love some more equally. <laughs> yeah, Sharon, not only is this sponsor a big deal, it's actually about a topic that you and I are both super, super passionate about, COVID prevention. Yeah, you're right, dude. We're more than two years in, and as a country, we're still dealing with COVID-19. This is something we can't help but keep in mind in our day-to-day -day lives at home and work, especially for those of us with immunocompromised people in our lives, our kids, our parents, and even all of our friends' kids and parents. And we want to make sure all of you, our super smart, savvy, and good-looking listeners of this pod, are vaccinated and boosted. And that you're encouraging all of the folks in your lives to do so, too. This AAPI Heritage Month, we can honor our AANHPI heritage communities and families today by getting vaccinated for a safer tomorrow. Wait, Roman, I thought it was just AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander. What's the NH in AANHPI stand for? <laughs> uh, it's Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander. Oh, snap. We got to get some of them on this podcast. Hmm, I think we need to go on location to record a chat with some native Hawaiian guests in their native Hawaiian islands. I'll settle for any Pacific Islands. <laughs> True that. But wait, hang on. Uh, what are we talking about again? We're talking about making sure we're all vaccinated. <laughs> and boosted. And boosted. For serious. Look, vaccinations greatly reduce your chance of having COVID symptoms like fatigue, pain, and memory problems that last for months. You know, beyond getting sick, long COVID is one of the COVID symptoms that really concerns me. I can barely keep everything going as it is. COVID is serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we are both parents with young kids and aging parents, so COVID is no joke. So we all have to do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and the communities we work and live in. 
Protect your tomorrow with a vaccine today. The COVID-19 vaccine is safe, effective, and free. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find vaccines and boosters near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. And now, back to our show. So I want to ask, I want to dig into the Kentucky thing a little bit. So I'm from Alabama. I've lived in the Midwest, like right on the border of Kentucky. So I spent quite a bit of time camping, hiking, going to shows. Like Southgate House is my jam, right? Northern Kentucky represent there. But about a decade ago, I found my home in New York, just outside of the city. And my wife and I, we're not from here. We're nomads. We've always struggled with the idea of returning home, you know, Alabama, Florida, and some of that's, we've got a good life here, or we're raising our kids here. But on the flip side, my, my parents are always like, oh, come back. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Especially when you like uh-huh. look at state by state, how people are reacting to the crisis of the times. Yeah. But, you know, I could go back and be part of the solution just by being there, not by necessarily running for office or opening a business, but just by interacting with people, being my obnoxious self beyond a podcast, but in conversations, in rooms. But I don't do that. And that's my own thing to talk about later. But like, I guess the question is, why do you guys stay? How has Kentucky become a home for you? You guys, and you're beyond the podcast for Louisville Public Media in the discourse of the ears of people there. You guys run businesses, you guys run organizations. So it's got to be hard. Why, why do you, what keeps you going? How do you, how do you keep it moving? In Kentucky. <laughs> well, for me, I lived in New York. I lived in Brooklyn for about four years. And then once we had a kid, we were like, <laughs> you wanted space. This God. is, well, it was just not just space, but we, we were raising a kid in a, what was our, our co-op was like 790 square feet, something like that. Uh, it is we're in this tiny little place. And we're like, this is untenable getting into daycares, like getting into college, everything is so expensive. And for me, the last straw was the fact that I had to carry my daughter in her McLaren stroller up and down subway stairs like six (laughs) times a day. And I was just like, this is not a way to live. And so we decided to come back to Kentucky. And for me, you know, I struggled for a few years coming back to Kentucky because I very much miss San Francisco. I very much miss New York. I miss the anonymity. I miss the safety. I miss Mm -hmm. the default diversity. I missed not standing out. And then later on, as I established myself here, as I grew roots here, made connections, made very solid community connections here, and let's be frank, gained power through that, it made me realize Lexington, for me, was the perfect size city because it was big enough for cool stuff to happen. I mean, it's 325,000 yeah, yeah, people. Yeah. It's, not, it's, yeah. it's not a tiny town. But it was still small enough culturally that you could make a big splash. I would have never opened a restaurant in San Francisco or New York, and I would never be running for local office in either of those places. But in a place like Lexington, I felt like I could make a splash and also make a difference. So when you talk about struggling with the idea of like, do I stay in New York? Do I go back home? I don't begrudge anybody what they decide because I can completely understand the just the default comfort and not having that background noise of just everyday casual racism. I mean, there's plenty of racism in New York, of course, but not in the way that you're constantly feeling different. 
It's a different flavor. Go. It's a different flavor. It's very much a different flavor. It tastes a lot more like mayonnaise, but they, <laughs> but yeah. So, but but for me, like I came back to Lexington for a different reason. But I'm staying because I feel like I can make uh, a real impact here. That's that is very similar to my story. We were like we were in Atlanta for seven years, and I loved Atlanta. If I could go back to any city, it would be Atlanta. But cost of living is very expensive. And the biggest thing for me is just there was just not I couldn't find community there like the way that I found it in Kentucky. Of course, this is where I spent my formative years. This is where I went to you know school and where I where my my now my husband and I met and fell in love and got married and all these different like great things. And so there is a very strong sense of community that I had in ties here that ran deeper than many of my relationships in Atlanta. And so I could call my neighbor and ask them to take care of my dog, or I could call my mother-in-law who lives an hour away just so that they could take care of my kids if they're sick or whatever. And so that was very important to me. Of course, similar to Dan, I, I don't know if I, at first, when we moved here, and we only moved back in 2018, so like four years ago now, and I wasn't sure if I made the right choice. I don't know if mm-hmm. school system, I, there were such great schools in Atlanta, and and all of the worries that you have as a parent, and of course, just being in a non-diverse place. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, Kentucky is my home. That's where I grew up, where I fell in love. So mm-hmm. I want that's where I want to raise my kids. I think it's great that you're around family. It's one of those things where I personally, I moved to LA about a year and a half ago and all of me and my husband's family are still back in New York. And even though Southern California is totally diverse as we've talked about, LA is very well populated. It's just different. Like Charlene, when you're saying your mother-in-law is an hour away, you can just like, they can stay with grandma and grandpa when the people are around, you have your tribe. And so it, those types of relationships really help, I think, especially when you have kids and especially when you have a family. What's been the biggest surprise that you guys have discovered from doing your show? Like, have you gotten any reactions from listeners or (laughs) what have you personally been surprised by as you've been doing it? My biggest surprise, I think, was just the reaction of some people who were not Asian and how they reacted to the show. You know, I I had lots of text messages and lots of DMs that were just like, I get asked that question all the time. I don't understand why it's a big deal. Like, and I get follow-up questions like, where are you really from? And it does not impact me in that way. And I'm like, dude, you're These are, sorry, these are white people saying this? These are white people, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, and and they might be like European or something or like first generation immigrant from Europe. But like that was like the biggest surprise to me of where they, it's like, OK, we're finally taking up a little bit of space and you're mm-hmm. telling us to go sit down, essentially. So, it's, so that was probably the biggest surprise. That was actually a follow up question I want to ask, because like, look, we do our little show and we have a nice little audience. I hate to say it sometimes like, well, we designed the show for majority ears, whether you're straight, non-Muslim, you know, white, whatever it is, male, non-queer. I think there's probably a predisposition, even if you're in the majority, to be curious to hear this versus your show is put out on public media Mm -hmm. on the airwaves in Louisville, Kentucky. Right. And it's like that audience reception. That's like, how is the majority reacting to this? And that's, it's a little okay. upsetting. It's a little upsetting to hear that. I think that Dan has a great answer to this that he said in one of the interviews that we did. 
it and I, I just find that like this is that we were doing this first for AAPI Kentuckians and that for me was a period that was it I didn't have to do it for anyone mm. else I didn't have to I don't really care what like some of these people are saying about me like for me <laughs> it was very important that the audience were first AAPI Kentuckian so that they could relate so that they could like find that community and hear, them, that hear themselves Got and it. hear themselves in the airwaves that was it for me but I think hmm. Dan has a really great answer to this <laughs> wait do I <laughs> Now, now I have to come up with a really great answer to this. No, well, so for Charlene, that whole thing of other people who are non-Asians coming up to her and saying, I get asked where I'm from and it doesn't offend me, why does it bother you? This was not a surprise to me because I've experienced so much of it and it came from a Facebook post I made probably five years ago, basically saying like, hey, when you ask a person of color or a person who quote unquote doesn't look like they're from here and when you ask them where they're from out of context just be aware that we get this bullshit all day long and it's triggering and it's traumatizing just don't do it and of course I got waves and waves of comments uh, a lot of people were very supportive a lot of people were like hey I never thought of that thank you for telling us uh, a lot of Asians and and other folks saying like yeah I get it all the time but also lots of lots of what I will say are well-meaning white people, particularly white women, saying like, <laughs> I get this all the time and it doesn't offend me. And I had to go round and round and I went from like excited to educate to fucking tired in like <laughs> five minutes. And what I was really grateful for were all these white friends came swooping in, working in allyship to explain this shit to people so that I didn't have to. And I thought that works so much better too because they're saying, hey, as a white person, I get what you're saying, but here's why it's different and here's how I've learned from it and you should learn too. So that for me was not a surprise. What Charlene talks about is when we conceptualize the show, we said, yeah, this is for Asian Americans because we're trying to tell stories that haven't been told and we're telling them to ourselves. And if everybody else wants to listen, great, that's a bonus. But we're not going to sit here and do explanatory commas. We're not going to explain to you mm. the, the nuances of the way we grew up and what does this actually mean. If you want to bother to educate yourself, you can go ahead. But the beauty of doing work or art that is specific is that it is inherently universal like mm -hmm. one of my favorite shows from last year was reservation dogs and that was not my experience growing up and there were so many things in that show that i did not get and that were not explained to me and i fucking loved that part about that show yeah. was that i knew it was for an audience that desperately needed to see those faces and those voices and those references but still for me as a complete outsider, the show was funny, the show was real, and you related to it from being an outsider or being in a small town wanting to get out or just remembering what it was like to be a teenager. So I think if you do good product like this, it doesn't matter who you are. If you have a little bit of empathy, you will get a lot out of out of shows like ours and like yours. Well, yeah, it's, it's not about being performative or minstrelly, right? It's about, mm. no, we're just going to have an authentic conversation and you can be a fly on the wall for it because there will be things that you do relate to, mm -hmm. the things that we all share in common as humans, but then there's going to be about 90% that you don't get and you're lucky that you get to hear or see this. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yep. And, yep. We're, yep. and 
<laughs> and I am really, I'm very tired all the time. I have a four-year-old, <laughs> 11-year-old. I work like 40 to 50 hours a week at my day job. And then I do these like really random side projects. So it's like, I'm tired. Also. So I do not have the energy to explain to non-Asians, white people, particularly white women, particularly of why that question is offensive. I mm. appreciate Dan and like his, what he said in, <laughs> in his Facebook post where it's like, come get your girl, okay? Like, these are not my people. You need to go find friends to explain this to you. Go Google 2022. Yeah. So, I, But yeah. I'm not going to explain it and I'm not going to waste my breath on it because I'm just, I'm tired. I'm not, my energy is yeah. for my family, my children, yeah. my community. So, yeah. you know, the, the, you the, the, the core of it for me is about empathy. And I think we're slowly, slowly coming around to this idea. Like when we talk about the idea of like belief survivors, right? Somebody mm. can tell you something and, and, and I go through this and I try not to argue with people on the internet anymore because it's just, it's so, so exhausting. But <laughs> they'll never win. Yeah, no, but the idea of like, if I come to you and say, hey, it really bothered me when blank happened. Instead of saying, well, that happens to me and I'm not bothered. I don't know why you're bothered. You're overreacting. You're misreading. That right. person meant well, blah, blah, blah. How about just, man, I'm sorry that happened to you. That sucks. Is there mm -hmm. anything I can do to help you? That's mm -hmm. all you have to do. That's yeah. all you have to do. Believe my experience and be sympathetic and try to work an allyship. That's it. Don't get wrapped up in your own ego of like, well, I've never experienced this, so this other person must be wrong. Like, come on. Right, and the thing is, is it's that belief of experience. It's like that like low-key, or maybe not even low-key, the gaslighting that's like, that can't be your experience. Mm -hmm. That's not true, you're just being sensitive. You're not black, you don't know what it is to experience racism, mm. or like, I, I also don't look white because I'm from Europe. You're like, what? Like, it's like, it's like, it's that gaslighting, that first step. It's the idea of understanding the world exists differently from the way you experience it. If people could just right. acknowledge that fact that the rest of the world does not see or experience the world the same way that we do. Mm -hmm. Full stop. Mm -hmm. uh, Full stop. Uh, but, but I, the problem is I think we're fighting human instinct. And, and again, that's why you have to trick them with cool podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So... Gosh, I feel like we could talk forever, and I, mm -hmm. I really hope we get the chance to have more conversations like this with you because you're doing some really powerful work. But I don't know, Sharon, you, you think they have their own speed round, but do you think they're ready for our speed round? I uh -oh. think. I think you guys are ready for our speed rounds. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think I've prepared for this. <laughs> so, Bring it on. Yeah, I guess we have to steal one of the questions that you ask in our own way. What is one of the most Kentucky things about you that people don't expect? For me is I drop my G's when I talk. So <laughs> I don't think I have a Kentucky accent, although if I talk to somebody who has a deeper country twang, I have found that my dialect starts leaning a little bit and starts mm. slowing a little bit. But I don't say walking or talking. I say walking, talking. It's, and, and that, I think, to me, feels like a thor thoroughly Southern thing. And I use y'all all the time. <laughs> I am going to piggyback off of that because I am going to reclaim this. I've decided, Dan, when we first started Good. this podcast, our producers were like, Charlie, you need to like 
you need to get it together and tighten up. Sometimes you say you all, and sometimes you say y'all. What is that? And so I, Central Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky, they say y'all. Like, that's a very, like, Appalachian (laughs) saying is y'all. But I grew up in Northern Kentucky, married to a Western Kentuckian, and I live in Louisville, which has a lot of Midwestern influence. And so oftentimes I will say you all instead of y'all. But I'm going to own that because that's all part of Kentucky, like all of Mm -hmm. that. So (laughs) my Kentucky thing is I will say y'all or you all, which represents (laughs) the whole state. And not oh, just one wow. area. <laughs> so, so, so Charlene, you're saying you're more inclusively Kentuckian than I am? Is that what oh, you're absolutely, implying? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm expanding my identity. I'm, I'm absolutely expanding my identity, Dan. So I will accept the y'all. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I love that. What is a book, movie, or show with characters that you relate to? Dan has like a, a library <laughs> he can like pull from. He's opening the spreadsheet. Yeah, I do have spreadsheets. Um, that... So this is going to sound really off, off, but the show recently, not actually recently, last year that I absolutely love, which I thought was just so brilliant, was Bling Empire on Netflix. So it's uh. like Real Housewives, <laughs> but with an all Asian cast living their most best extravagant life. I'm a huge Real Housewives fan. And so I love that whole franchise. But Bling Empire was the first one that was like, yes, we are also powerful <laughs> and rich. And look at oh, our no. life. And this is brilliant. And we are also very, have lots of multitudes and also could do really bad reality television. And I love it. I cannot tell you how much I love that show. Charlie, and I was like, yes, yes. This is where I'm very upset at you because Sharon has been, we have a spreadsheet of guests we should try to get on the show. And Sharon's been pushing. Oh. I've been pushing. Like this one. And yes. I think you might have just given her a winning argument. There you go. I mean, it's absolutely, it is the first reality television. It's so true. Class, like, and it, it was the number one show on Netflix. Exactly. Oh my gosh. It's, it's Look, yeah. Indian Tremonials was a big deal on Netflix, and I don't want those people on my podcast. It's amazing. Revan, they are so basic. always like, he's always like, but why? Like, but why? Why, Sharon? Why? I'm like, because they're just awesome. They drive these really fancy <laughs> they cars. Are and they, awesome. they shop for high jewelry. They actually call it high jewelry. He's like, <laughs> but like because... what substance are they going to bring? Exactly. And I'm like, I don't know, but they have an audience. So. Okay. Also, too, also. So listen, Wealth in America was created by exploiting black and brown people, okay? I'm going to go full force on this. And I think that Wealth in America was created, was made out of slavery, colonization, all of these different things. And here are Asian Americans who are like, we are wealthy too. Look at this empire that we created. And let, I mean, we could go back as to probably how they created their wealth, but we're not going to go there. But in 2022, (laughs) here is here. We are wealthy too. We own this space as well. And also leave the extravagant lifestyle. And 
it's a space for it's a space for everyone it's great it's an you know, it's you, great, you know. I, I think charlene and sharon need to team up for like a bling empire rewatch yeah. podcast. oh my go. gosh sharon, if Perfect. you can get that guest i will co i'll co-host that, that i am going to <laughs> let's do that. i'm gonna do some outreach it's gonna be a collab between our two podcasts and charlene if any of them say yes you will co-host that with oh me. my gosh <laughs> brilliant this just like made my year okay like this is oh my gosh i cannot wait to tell everyone see see a lpm it'll be blowing up on louisville public radio this this is what we this is what we call synergy right (laughs) dan what what about you uh i i can't even nail it down to one i am a diehard diehard comic book sci-fi fantasy fan and this is interesting because recently charlene and i were on southern fried asian keith chow's podcast about asians in the south and i had noticed that keith's office background had just tons of action figures in it so (laughs) i i noted it to keith and i said keith we should talk action figures sometime because i have a huge collection of toys myself and he says well i happen to also do another podcast about toy collecting so i was actually on keith's toy collecting show recently and and I'm getting to my point, but we were talking about growing up in the 80s and 90s and how if you wanted to collect Asian American action figures, there was diddly squat. There were like literally three characters from G.I. Joe and like nothing else. And today, if you're a young kid into comic books, into any sort of pop culture, between Shang-Chi and Moana and Ms. Marvel and the new Hulk is an Asian kid, Rose Tico and Baze Malbus from Star Wars. Like every property, Gene Yang is doing a run of a Chinese Superman. It's all over the place. I'm not saying we've peaked yet. I don't think we're, I don't think we're close to peaking. There's so much more now for not just young people, but for grown ass adults like me. Yeah. yeah. That, so I can't even pinpoint it, like, always be my maybe. Yeah, no, uh, just... Miles Morales is popular yes. with non-black people. Kamala yeah. Khan is getting a Disney Plus show. I, yes. you, dude, you're yes. speaking. Yeah. You yeah. don't even know how hard. Like, it's yeah. a shame you can't see my action figures yeah. <laughs> behind the camera right now. But, yeah, it's uh, we're in a moment. And I think it's honestly, like, I do think about, wow, Little Brown Rumman would have loved this. Mm, but more right. important is little white christopher is seeing this yes absolutely absolutely so you guys have a laundry list of people you're probably going to be talking to but who's someone you would want to sit down for a for a podcast chat with uh in kentucky or otherwise yes yes (laughs) wow It's it's hard to think that way because actually because we've been just trying to rack our brains and and actually not even rack our brains we have a long long list of potential guests. We have a guests. very long list. Yeah. 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 And, and for us too, like we're not necessarily looking for celebrities or well known people. The, there's a kid who's in marching band with my kid and uh, he's a Malaysian Muslim and his mom is a game designer. And I'm like, what? You know what I mean? Like a middle-aged Malaysian Muslim woman in Kentucky is a game designer. Like, that's who I want to talk to, folks like that. But for our show, what we're trying to do for season two is broaden out beyond just one-on-one interviews with interesting people. We want to start tackling themes. We want to do a show themed around parents and our our complicated relationship with our parents, but also as parents. 
We want to do a show about food because that is so integral to so much of our experiences. We want to do a show on relationships. We realized that the four of us who co-created the show all have white partners and mm-hmm. that outmarriage, I think Asian Americans have the highest rate of outmarriage in America of marrying people not from their own sort of background or ethnicity. Mm. So there are all these interesting sort of, and then earlier we I were think talking. that's the name of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Out, out marriage. Uh, out, out marriage. Yeah, it's a whole, it's his own thing. We could do like a, like dating advice. It'll be uh, a little bit of that and a little bit of our show. Uh, and then earlier we were talking about names too, about how so many Asian Americans have either anglicized first names or have married someone who's not Asian American. So they, they've taken on that other name or transracial adoptees or people who are of mixed ancestry and how having a non-Asian identifying name affects their sense of identity. So there's so much like rich stuff that for us to uh, dig into. All that, to, all that to say though, is that we really want to have more of these stories representative and we want to have those everyday stories because like I said, mm-hmm. the, the, the hope is that this podcast is for all AAPI Kentuckians to have the space where they can hear themselves, hear their stories that they've had growing up. So. We haven't really had any, like actually Dan had a big star on the season closer. That was very exciting. And then we had the a former UofL president come, but like we really wanted to focus on these everyday stories of Kentuckians. All right. What is your favorite mom dish? Chicken adobo. Yeah. I, I saw that one coming. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we literally made pork adobo last night. So Nice. <laughs> Uh, the one that, and actually my mom hasn't made it for me a long time, but one that really sticks out in my mind is steamed tofu. She would cook it in the rice cooker, steamed tofu, then she cut it open, put a little bit of sesame oil, a little bit of scallion, and then if we had like little bits of ham or something. And that's always what I ate when I wasn't feeling well. I don't think I've had it in years, and I've only ever made it for myself a couple times, and it felt weird to make it for myself. It felt like my mom should be over here doing yeah. this. <laughs> Sounds yummy. Well, guys, to wrap up, what does being a modern minority mean for you? I think being a modern minority is actually just holding lots of multitudes. Like I've said, we have like so many aspects of our identities. And I think that now in 2022, especially in Kentucky, we have to expand what it means of, of being in community because there's just so many that have been ostracized and that have been living on the edges and don't hold the privileges that we have as agents. And we have lots of privileges. And as a modern minority, we need to start thinking about how we expand our identity. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have an opportunity in this country to redefine for ourselves as individuals and as a group as a whole who we want to be what do we want to be and it's built on a lot of how other people have defined us but I think we have that opportunity now particularly for us of this generation of people whose parents or grandparents were immigrants so we're second third later generations we're standing on their shoulders and all the work that they did to kind of stabilize us kind of allows us the mental room to think about all these things about identity, to think about solidarity, to think about doing social justice. So yeah, it's an amazing opportunity, I think. That's awesome. Well, Dan, Charlene, I'm so glad we discovered each other. And I'm honestly more glad that you guys are doing your show in a pocket of the world 
that needs to have your show. So mm-hmm. even if you're not living in Kentucky, I would encourage all our listeners to like just go check out where y'all really from, wherever you get your podcasts, and you get to hear more from Dan and Charlene, the Kentucky version of Sharon and Roman nerding out every week. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, this is like, uh, in the comic book world, this is like one of those massive crossover events. <laughs> it's like a mirror universe thing. It's yeah. kind of yes. weird. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much, and please keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.